Hello, my name is Kim Wunschmann and I'm a research fellow at the Department for Modern and Contemporary History at Ludwig Maximilians University Munich. Since 2017, I co-host the colloquium The Holocaust and Its Contexts together with Frank Bayor, the director of the Center for Holocaust Research at the Leibniz Institute for Contemporary History. In this podcast, you're invited to listen to a panel discussion which we held with four esteemed colleagues, Natalia Lexiun, Ekaterina Machotina, Andrea Pette, and Svetlana Soveika. The topic of this special colloquium is Holocaust research, memory and politics in Eastern Europe. The recording was made on the 14th of January 2019 at LMU Munich. Good evening and welcome to our research colloquium Holocaust and its context, co-hosted by the Chair for Contemporary History here at LMU Munich and the Center for Holocaust Studies at the Institute for Contemporary History Munich. Uh, my name is Kim Wünschmann, I'm a research fellow at the Chair for Contemporary History. I welcome you all also on behalf of Professor Frank Bajor, um, with whom I will share this event tonight. We're glad um, to see you. I would like to thank uh, Andrea Löw, also the deputy head of the centre, who was uh, really crucial in organising uh, tonight's event. And some of you might have spotted uh, this little recording device. We are making an experiment and uh, recording tonight's session. That's also because there is uh, wider interest and in people who can't come tonight uh, have uh, expressed uh, their wish uh, to hear what will be said. So I just want you to be aware of this, that we are uh, recording and we're going to record the whole session, which also involves some Q&A uh, with the audience. Um, we have invited four distinguished scholars in the field of Holocaust history, memorial studies and the history and commemoration of the Second World War in uh, Europe. Professor Natalia Alexion, Dr. Ekaterina Machotina, Professor Andrea Petu, and Dr. Svetlana Soveyka. Welcome to LMU Munich. Welcome back to LMU Munich for some of you. And we're very, very uh, glad and very pleased to have you uh, with us here uh, tonight. Um, before I properly introduce uh, our guests, I'll say a few words, and Frank Boyer will also say a few words. I'll, I'll make a quick uh, start by um, saying that tonight's discussion actually connects very well to our last colloquium, uh, which we had here with Miriam Zadov um, a few weeks ago, the uh, director of the Munich Documentation Center for the History of National Socialism. For those of you who were here with us last time, you might remember that Professor Zadov shared with us some of her ideas about the future of Holocaust education and the future um, about, uh, of Holocaust uh, memory. She expressed an urgent need to rethink the place of uh, memory, uh, centers of documentation, documentation centers in society. Um, she saw a need to open um, the doors very widely to operate not uh, solely as places of learning and places of remembrance, but also as uh, sites for dialogue, for fostering an understanding of the other, uh, for discussions about current trends in the politics of history and the politics of memory. So memorial sites, documentation centers, research institutes and also universities in Germany find themselves in the midst of a somewhat radicalizing political, 
climate in which our understanding of the Nazi past, of German history, of practices, of Holocaust memory are challenged and uh, to some extent also questioned. While the new populist right has risen in Germany, we need to position ourselves um, as it is also, I think, our work uh, which is under attack when politicians, public figures and members of parliamentary parties demand a, a radical change, a turnaround uh, in memorial uh, policies, in, in history policies, and also belittle the Nazi regime and its crimes. This development in Germany can be situated into a broader European context, and this is actually our aim uh, tonight, to understand this contested field um, within a larger European uh, perspective. And we actually feel the need to create this space um, to provide an open forum for exchange on the politics of Holocaust research and the politics of memory. And tonight's event has sparked discussions already beforehand. Um, we take this as an indication uh, for the controversial nature of some of the issues at stake, um, but we also take it as a confirmation for what we feel is an increased need for dialogue, a need to talk. And I hand over to yeah. Frank. Yeah, in preparation for this discussion today, I have taken a look at, uh, at a book published almost 20 years ago, written by the sociologists Daniel Levy and Nathan Schneider. Uh, the German original title is Erinnerung im globalen Zeitalter der Holocaust, Memory in the Global Age, the Holocaust. And both have uh, advanced the thesis in, within this book that the global spread and development of Holocaust memory almost worldwide uh, was accompanied by a growing consensus at that time since the 1990s to fight uh, for human rights, uh, to fight against genocide, uh, against anti-Semitism, xenophobia, as it is, for instance, expressed in the famous uh, uh, Stockholm Declaration from January 2000, where, uh, where uh, more than 40 representatives of various states adopted a declaration saying, I quote, with humanity still scared by genocide, ethnic cleansing, racism, anti-Semitism and xenophobia, the international community shares a solemn responsibility to fight these evils, uh, end quote. And of course, in view of the last two decades, we can pose, quite rightly pose the question whether this connection between a, a Holocaust memory, global Holocaust memory on the one hand, and the spread of liberal, democratic, uh, Western values uh, after the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Iron Curtain, uh, whether this connection is still valid or whether it has ever been valid. Is it still true for America when looking at statements by the Trump administration made in 2017 on the occasion of Holocaust Memorial Day, is it still true for Germany as uh, the so-called alternative for Germany is demanding for a 180-degree turn in the memorial culture? And is it, of course, true for the countries we are now dealing with in Central and Eastern Europe where Holocaust memory has become a specific uh, contested uh, field? 
And of course, the, this is one of the questions I think we should discuss. The other is, uh, what is the reason why this, uh, why Holocaust memory has become such a contested field? And of course, another question Tim has already mentioned, uh, what should we do in this situation now? If you, could you give us some advice if you were head of uh, a, a center for Holocaust studies in Germany uh, who, is, uh, who likes to cooperate with colleagues in, in many, all over the world, and in particular in Central and Eastern Europe, um, what would you expect us to do? This, these are some questions I think we should address in the discussion. Yeah, um, so here to talk with us tonight are four distinguished scholars. Um, I'm going to introduce them in an alphabetical order, and then I'm going to invite them to give a little introductory statement. So welcome Professor Natalia Alexium. Um, Natalia Alexium is a professor of modern Jewish history at the Graduate School for Jewish Studies at Turo College in New York. Her work really spans a very broad thematic scope, covering the history of Polish Jewry in the 20th century, Polish-Jewish relations, and the Holocaust in Eastern Europe. A PhD thesis at Warsaw University won the Polish Prime Minister's Award for Doctoral Students, appeared in print in 2002 as Where To? The Zionist Movement in Poland, 1944 to 1950. 2010, she received her second PhD from New York University based on her dissertation entitled Ammunition in the Struggle for National Rights, Jewish Historians in Poland Between the Two World Wars. Professor Alexin has published widely and is the recipient of several fellowships and grants, including a fellowship at the Center for Holocaust Research here at the ISZ in Munich. Um, she was also fellow at the USHMM and Yad Vashem, Yivo Institute and the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw. She's currently a fellow at the Imre Kertes College in Jena, working on a project dealing with daily lives of Jews in hiding in Galicia during the Holocaust. Welcome. Welcome, Dr. Ekaterina Machotina, um, who's an assistant professor for history of Eastern Europe at the University of Bonn. Her research interests focus on the memory culture and the politics of history in Russia, Lithuania, and Germany. Here at LMU, she was a uh, research fellow at the Chair for Eastern European History, and um, she also defended her dissertation uh, here at LMU Munich um, on the memory of the Second World War and the German occupation in Lithuania from the Soviet times until the present day. The study has been awarded the Peregrinus Prize of the Bavarian Academy of Science in 2017, and among her many publications, I just mentioned the monograph Erinnerungen an den Krieg, Krieg der Erinnerungen, Litauen und der Zweite Weltkrieg, which has been published in 2017. Dr. Mahatina has been involved in various research projects. She also worked for the Institute of Contemporary History in Munich. Uh, she co-directed a project entitled Sieg, Befreiung, Besatzung, Kriegsdenkmäler und Gedenkfeiern zum 70. Jahrestag des Kriegsendes im postsozialistischen Europa. And her current research project is very exciting, dealing with uh, monastery prisons in Russia in the early modern period, project. So welcome. Um, welcome, Professor André Petter, um, who is Professor of the Department for Gender Studies at the Central European University in Budapest in Hungary. 
and a Doctor of Science at the Hungarian Academy of Science. Long list of publications, including five uh, monographs, mirrors her work on gender, on politics, the Holocaust, and war. To name but a few of the recent uh, publications, there's the book Gender War, which appeared in the gender series of the Macmillan Interdisciplinary Handbooks, published in 2017. The co-edited co volume, Gendered Wars, Gendered Memories, Feminist Conversations on War, Genocide, and Political Violence, published in 2016, and the co-edited volume, Women and the Holocaust, New Perspectives and Challenges, published in 2015. To honor her wide-ranging scholarly work on gender studies and European contemporary history, Professor Petter was awarded the 2018 All-European Academies Madame de Staël Prize for Cultural Values. She's also the recipient of further awards, fellowships, including the Distinguished Fellowship at the Center for Holocaust Studies this, this year, so just, just arrived in Munich. Um, during her fellowship, she will work on a current project on the memory of female perpetrators in World War II Hungary, which examines women's participation in far-right political movements, how women became perpetrators and how their memory was shaped in the post-war period. Welcome Dr. Svetlana Sobeka, who is a research associate and lecturer at the Chair for Southeast and East European History at the University of Regensburg. She obtained a PhD in history from the Alexander Jan Kusa University in Yash in Romania, with a thesis entitled Bessarabia and the Greater Romania in the Immediate Period After the 1918 Union. She has lectured at Moldova State University in Chisinau and at the University of Bernard in Timisoara in Romania. Before taking up her current position, she was a research associate at the Leibniz Institute for East and Southeast European Studies in Regensburg. She's also the recipient of various grants and fellowships, including a Humboldt Research Fellowship at the University of Regensburg and a Fulbright Senior Research Fellowship at Stanford University. Research interests focus on southeastern Europe between 1914 and 1945, on 20th century Romanian and Bessarabian history, the social and political transformation of the post-Soviet space. And from the long list of publication, I'd like to mention the monograph Bessarabia and the First Interwar Decade, 1918-1928, Modernization by Means of Reforms, published in 2010, and the co-edited volume Historiography and Politics of Eastern and Western Areas of the Romanian Space, published in 2009. Now you know all about our distinguished uh, guests, and the time uh, is right, I think, um, to give them um, the word. And we'll hear four uh, brief and short introductory uh, statements. We'll then have a discussion on the panel before opening up um, to you. Um, and I'd like to invite my neighbor Svetlana Sveika to kick us off. Thanks very much for the nice introduction and for giving me the possibility to, to say a couple of words um, uh, on the topic. I will um, try to, to be sure that therefore I will uh, stick to, to the text uh, wrote down. 
During the Second World War, between 280,000 and 380,000 Jews, as well as Roma and other minorities, were persecuted and murdered by the Romanian occupation regime, Romanian being second after Germany that annihilated such a big number of victims. The Moldovans show reluctance towards acknowledging the extraordinary scale and consequences of the destruction of Jews, preferring to claim that they suffered more during the war than the others, minorities instead. The commemoration of Holocaust victims is limited to several geographical locations and sites. There are other foreign travelers who pursue their professional or personal curiosity to discover places related to Jewish history and make aware the larger public about them. I grew up in a small town of Edinitz in the northern part of former Moldavian Soviet Republic. I was secretly baptized by my grandparents in a nearby village. And in the list of godfathers was a family of Jews, Abram and Faina Glinoe. We used to visit them in a Jewish quarter. The house was on today Holocaust Street. I knew from my mom, who was a history teacher, that two-thirds of town population used to be Jews. As a student, during the period when Moldova gained independence, I do not remember any of my professors using the word Holocaust during their lectures. Those who took an active part in the so-called National Liberation Movement of late 80s and supported the idea that Moldova united with Romania, emphasized Romania's holy war of liberation of Bessarabia and Bukovina from the Soviets. In terms, in turn, professors who lectured from, um, for Russian students speaking um, speaking students argued that there were Soviet troops that liberated Bessarabia from the Romanian yoke in the Great Patriotic War. Representatives of both groups accepted to the Moldovan parliament. Their political discourses aimed at legitimizing either the Romanian or the Soviet regime. Subsequently, the need to remember the victims of either the Romanian or the Soviet occupation was emphasized. Both sides used the word truth in their rhetoric. The existence of multiple truths, similar to multiple ways of representing and narrating the past, was denied. Up to today, Holocaust deniers are widely quoted by Moldovan historians who emphasize that communists had a nationality because the great majority of those who supported the occupation of Bessarabia by Soviet troops in June 1940 were Jews. On the other side, there are those who argued that Holocaust was a purely Romanian phenomenon. More recently, Holocaust was debated as part of competing victimhood dilemma, in which the dimension of majority versus minority is present. There is also a tendency to establish that a hierarchy of crimes, Soviet deportations being seen the worst crime committed against Moldovans that went hand in hand with denationalization and Russification. One must say that congenital victimhood became part of Moldovan identity. Challenging this perspective provides to be not an easy task, especially when one takes into account that less, um, it lies exclusively on the shoulders of individual researchers. The example of Diana Dumitru, whose valuable work you might know is inspiring. Nevertheless, individual efforts are not enough to change the way the whole society perceives Holocaust. In contrast with the Baltic states or the neighboring Romania, Moldova has no public institutions dealing with research and remembrance of war and Holocaust. Public debate on the reshape of historical memory in the region doesn't echo in Moldova. 
The observers indicate the fact that the recent rise in efforts to reshape historical memory in several countries, such as Poland and Ukraine, has been driven by three linked factors. The decreasing influence of EU institutions, the growth of right-wing parties, and the rising tensions with Russia. None of these factors are present in the case of Moldova. The need to combat anti-Semitism, intolerance, and xenophobia and integrate Jewish history into a wider local, national, and regional context through education, cultural, and commemoration activities was stressed out by state institutions only during the last couple of years. On January 27, 2016, the National Holocaust Remembrance Day was marked for the first time. So in the summer, the same year, Moldovan Parliament adopted a declaration on the acceptance of the final report of international commissions for the study of Holocaust in Romania, the so-called Elivizal Report. In the autumn last year, the intention to establish a Jewish museum um, in Chisinau was declared. Nevertheless, uh, one can see that there is no strategy of approaching Jewish heritage. One should notice that these changes occurred as a result of sturdy pressure coming from international institutions, such as the EU delegation, the Council of Europe, the OSCE mission in Moldova, as well as after a series of visits of representatives of the World Jewish Congress. Similar to other countries, Moldova tries to instrumentalize foreign models of dealing with the past in different ways. Um, recently, the first stumbling stone, Stolpersteine, appeared in Chisinau. On the same day, a memorial plaque, the so-called last address that commemorated the victim of Stalin's deportation, was installed. The events were commented as targeting reconciliation. At the same time, one observes the double genocide approach nearly endorsed in Lithuania and other former Soviet lands, which holds that Nazism and communism were a twin evil of the 20th century and what to be remembered alongside each other penetrates also in Moldova. The question is whether the marginalization of inconvenient past will be avoided. Moldova acquired the status of observer within the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance and I remember in one of the seminars I took part as a facilitator, I met teachers who knew quite a lot about their um, local communities and also um, launched small educational projects um, with their pupils. Indeed, an attentive observer of local environment can notice that sub-local communities are one step forward the official commemoration policy. There are examples in this regard um, also from my uh, hometown, Edinitz. Local impulses which go in parallel with new research on social dimension of war have the potential to produce distinctive cultural and institutional forms of dealing with the past. Society needs experiences that, in Walter Benjamin's words, can make the past meet the present, so make people think about what happened, how it can be represented and remembered, and about what we can do from now on. And one can observe, um, um, as an example, um, just to, to close, um, the visualization of uh, Radu Zhu, the film, I don't care if we, if we go down in history as barbarians, featuring the um, Odessa massacre of 1941, how it was received in the audience, um, um, what kind of reaction um, it came. So um, uh, various heritage practices um, as a grassroots initiatives in which various local uh, stakeholders um, take place um, and take part together, combining efforts with, with public institutions can, can bring to, to the results we are all waiting for.
Thank you very much. <clears throat> I hand the word to Katrina Mahati now. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, and uh, I would start with a short remark that uh, Lithuania is a specific case in the history of the Holocaust in the Eastern Europe because 95% of the Jewish population, Jewish pre-war population, were exterminated and uh, the most of them, the majority of them in the first months of the German occupation in, in the year uh, 1941, uh, till the December 1941, uh, about uh, one, 130,000 Jews were exterminated, annihilated. And of course it, uh, it has to deal, and Christoph Dickmann, the well-known uh, historian on the Holocaust in Lithuania, makes a point it has to do with the logic of the German occupational policy in, in Lithuania and a uh, uh, large scale of involvement of Lithuanians in the, in the mass violence and the systematic annihilation of the Jewish population in Lithuania. Uh, the Lithuanians had been involved in the uh, services of occupational regime much more than Poles or Russians. And um, this is uh, the collaboration is actually a very sensitive sensitive topic in uh, nowadays Lithuania. Uh, the most known case maybe. Uh, also, you know or had uh, heard about this case of Ruta Vanagaite. Uh, her public acting, uh, she, pu- uh, she published a book. She is not a historian, she's a journalist, and she published a book two years ago, Musishke, the Hours or the Our People, where she describes the our Jewish victims and the our Jewish, uh, our Lithuanian collaborators are equal parts of the Lithuanian society. And uh, she put uh, in light the very traumatic story of the Lithuanian broad participation in the Holocaust. And this book launched a great debate uh, about the perception of uh, Lithuanians as collaborators, perpetrators. And uh, then uh, Vonagaita made a point that uh, a national hero, Adolfos Romanovskos Vanagas, uh, anti-Soviet partisan leader, uh, was a collaborator and actually a betrayer, was a collaborator with the Nazis. Um, and a very harsh reaction followed. Um, her books were taken from the bookshops and the fall edition were liquidated, so to say, and uh, now her, her voice is forbidden, actually. She is persona non grata. Um, and this is a, a, the topic that she touched, that touched the construction of national identity because of the uh, searching for national heroes as uh, resistant fighters against the Soviet regime after the Second World War. So it's a very romantic myth, uh, war after war, struggle for freedom, to show uh, we, uh, we did resistance against the Soviets. It is very important for Lithuanians to construct their national identity in the post-Soviet time on this topic. And, uh, uh, of course, it's um, uh, the question of uh, collaborating on these national heroes, because in the Lithuanian uh, memory, these uh, partisan leaders are heroes or saints or, I don't know, martyrs, maybe. And in Jewish memory, it's, it's clear they are perpetrators because they had been involved in the Collaborational, uh, in the collaboration with the Nazis, and this is the one uh, one problematic point in this uh, dealing with collaboration in, in Lithuania. The second problematic point is a Soviet legacy of uh, memory on, on the Holocaust. 
Um, we can uh, we can say that, uh, and you know, the Jewish identity of the Vixens were not emphasized as what just one in the in the, in the uh, just one uh, of the groups uh, which suffered in the war. And in Lithuania, it's uh, very interesting that the Jewish victims of the German occupation. Uh, had been Lithuanized and nationalized. There had been Lithuanians, so was to, uh, to say, that uh, uh, which suffered under the German occupation. The Lithuanians were the victims, and the Lithuanians uh, had been the heroes because they struggled in the partisan movement, in the Soviet partisan movement. So um, the Jewish identity wasn't emphasized, whether in uh, neither in in uh, Jewish partisan uh, battalions, no, for the uh, no to, uh, dealing with the Jewish um, victims, um, and this is uh, this is uh, the story uh, of um, marginalizing the Jewish victims of the uh, Holocaust starts in the after the war directly and uh, takes. Uh, takes uh, further in the uh, post-Soviet time, and uh, this is also a starting point uh, for the development of uh, Jewish memory, of Holocaust memory in the post-Soviet Lithuania, the perception of total tabuization of uh, Jewish victims. We have to to speak out, we have to speak on Holocaust, and we have to teach on Holocaust. And there had been uh, not historians, not Holocaust researchers, but survivors. It was, it, it was some kind of communicative memory, memory of the suffered society who came to Lithuania or who had been in Lithuania in this time. And... Uh, opening the exhibition, building memorials. It was a grassroots memory, memory from below. Um, but at the same time, in post-Soviet time, not only the Jewish victim discourse uh, is developed, but also a uh, um, Lithuanian victim discourse. Uh, Lithuanians spoke on the Stalinist crime as genocide on the Lithuanian people. You know there is a genocide museum in Vilnius dealing with the Stalinist crimes and the Lithuanians as victims of the national crimes. So we have uh, this here some kind of two victimization politics of the uh, groups of the, collect of the collectives who suffer it. In the in the Soviet time and the Nazi time and Soviet time and they they don't touch each other um, because the Jewish memory uh, is a very traumatic memory memory on the Holocaust is uh, uh, some kind acceptable and uh, respectable for the. Uh, Lithuanian national memory, so the Holocaust memory could be integrated in the Lithuanian national memory. It's no doubt about this, because Lithuanian is a member in the European Union. It has to remember the Holocaust. But it's just a memory, uh, it's just mourning about the Jews, it's just uh, participating in the rituals of mourning, of remembering uh, the Jewish genocide in Lithuania. But they play the role just as victims. By uh, mourning about the victims, we have a specific emotion, specific empathy. By morning, we don't speak about perpetrators. We are not dealing with mechanism of violence. We are not dealing with, uh, with our own participation in this violence, with ourselves as, per as perpetrators. And the, the, the further point uh, in this aspect, if we are speaking on the uh, Holocaust, uh, on the Holocaust as a part of Lithuanian memory, uh, the Jews uh, are allowed uh, to function in this collective memory in Lithuania just as passive victims, but not as active uh, fighters against Nazism. 
because it's um, uh, it's evidently um, uh, there that, um, that that the Jewish partisans actually struggled against the Nazi and the Lithuanian collaborators, and at the same time, of course, on the side of the Soviet Union. But the Soviet Union is in a Lithuanian memory um, uh, uh, a figure of perpetrator, a figure of enemy, and there is still a, a very very broad uh, uh, public insight that anti-fascist partisans had been uh, Stalinist partisans who brought Soviet occupation number two to Lithuania. And so in Lithuania, there's really a lacking memory. You don't have any exhibition uh, or any memorial for the Jewish partisans struggling against active resistance fighters against the Nazi occupation. Thank you. And now hand over to Natalia Alexiou. Thank you, and I also am grateful for being included in this discussion. And I must say that I will start with despair, with a statement of despair, both because of today's news from Poland with the death of the mayor of uh, Gdańsk, who was attacked yesterday and passed away today. Uh, But in a way, what I have to say is a narrative of uh, um, nostalgia for the hopefulness about both of Frank's questions that I had uh, just a few years ago about the role that Holocaust memory uh, can play and how uh, both memory and research will uh, progress uh, in the future, and especially uh, that being said about uh, Poland. So let me just say that in a way, in the uh, autobiographical way, because of my entering the university in 1990, I sort of experienced as a student uh, the opening up of discussion in Poland that was happening uh, both in classrooms and in terms of publications and in terms of public discourse uh, and what seemed like a permanent moving away from a martyrological, um, hagiographic memory uh, and and identity deeply rooted uh, in the sense of um, Polish uh, uh, suffering uh, um, during the suffering and heroism uh, during the Second World War as the only ways, the only modes in which one could uh, think, discuss and uh, remember. And in fact, I think for two decades, um, if one can speak of leadership, uh, Polish scholarship or scholarship coming out of Poland has become uh, a cutting edge uh, uh, research uh, in Central Eastern Europe and beyond. If we think of the calls that were made by uh, major scholars of of the Holocaust, such as Shaul Friedlander, uh, about integrated scholarship of the Holocaust, about the use of uh, um, novel, use of personal uh, documents, about um, gender, about daily life. Uh, All of these uh, aspects of scholarships uh, of scholarship were done by uh, historians working in Poland, um, who especially in the 90s uh, were publishing um, truly uh, remarkable uh, uh, books and and articles. So on the one hand, you had this local turn in scholarship um, and to a large extent, provincial turn, meaning looking at the daily um, 
life under the German occupation uh, in uh, German-occupied Poland, uh, which by nature had to bring to the uh, um, lens of a scholar the interactions, and here I pause, Polish-Jewish interactions, um, Polish... Um, Jewish, non-Jewish, Polish interactions. I mean, scholars wonder how we should think applying those clear-cut uh, ethnic terms to the victims and their neighbors. Uh, but this uh, has become the major focus of study uh, with micro-historical perspective. And if you look at um, collective works such, such as Provincia Notes, uh, works published by... Um, Barbara Engelking by uh, Jacek Leociak and others. Interestingly, and this is maybe for the second round of discussion, a lot of these scholars came out of other fields of humanities, not necessarily history. Uh, their diplomas first were in uh, literature or psychology or uh, sociology, but that's uh, maybe more of a question of how we are being trained as historians. Uh, nevertheless, to me, to some extent, as somebody who observed it and who was part of, of that new wave, um, th there really seemed to be just um, uh, a wonderful march towards uh, uh, even more uh, uh, important research in the future. And it go, went hand in hand with local, what you call local impulses, with activists, local activists of memory, who are um, taking care of Jewish cemeteries, left uh, sites of Jewish presence in hundreds and hundreds of uh, places in Poland, with uh, courses for teachers organized by many institutions. And of course, once the museum, Pauline Museum of the History of Polish Jews opened, it also became a very important site for generating, curating, uh, not just scholarship, but also popular history. Um, now, once the discussion among historians and in the public discourse as well, and of course with uh, Jan Gross's neighbors, that became very much a public discussion um, with the book being sold at gas stations. Um, uh, but, but with that lens, um, questions about... No, the behavior during the war simply had to come to the surface. And uh, painful discussions often for scholars themselves who actually talked about it on the record and off the record, how they came to the scholarship not really knowing what the archives will tell them and what for them being raised and educated with an uplifting uh, vision of the past how unbearable and how heartbreaking those encounters with sources uh, have been and how they had to really overcome uh, their own sense of remaking their own sense of Polish history vis-a-vis -vis, um, stories uh, from survivors, uh, from victims, from bystanders. And, and I think that the big discussion, the big cutting edge now discussion on Holocaust scholarship about the extent to which bystanders, 
is a category we should be using, how useful it is, how adequate it is. Much of it has come from research that was done about German-occupied Poland. So I uh, think there is a great sense of pride of that body of literature, of institutions that were built, of um, journals that uh, still exist. But there is also a question of... uh, you asked that question, what happened about the point of um, why, why this is so contested. Uh, there is no doubt that this is a very contested, again, part of Polish history. Uh, the way we talk and write about the Second World War and the Holocaust in particular. And is this a process of unlearning? Is this something that historians brought documents and data and then it seemed like it crossed over and now... It's coming back, the pendulum, almost with a more dynamic than before. Um, Is there, I've heard people posing a question that maybe um, it was too much too soon, that it became just too difficult uh, to accept that maybe historians should have been a little gentler. Um, I mean, I'm posing it as really uh, both professional and and personal dilemma um, of how this painful past uh, uh, can be uh, researched and talked about. Uh, so I don't have, I don't have any answer uh, of what we can do. We are very clearly at the crossroads, and they are also practical crossroads because research. Let's not fool ourselves. Research doesn't happen. Um, as a a, um, side hobby. Uh, People need uh, uh, positions, um, appointments, uh, uh, journals, grants, and the more the subject of the Holocaust becomes contested in a very particular way in which uh, this daily life uh, on the ground is primarily raised in the context of the righteous, among the nations, and that's the really one direction that gets tremendous attention. Um, I think even if people are not directly um, pushed out of institutions, um, people know what subjects not to apply with uh, for grants, and people will understand what papers not to submit. Uh, So this is a very practical question of the future of research, the future of institutions, uh, uh, the future of research in a situation in which practical opportunities, I think, will be more and more contested. Um, And not that I'm making a comparison, but using the title of Sam Castle's book, who will get to write that history? Um, How this history will be taught, what will be in the school programs? Uh, And then, of course, this is all leading to the question of uh, memory, of public memory. And, and I think there is a great deal of parallel to what you presented about Lithuania, in which um, I don't think we can say that Holocaust is no longer mentioned. I, again, being in school, I'm dating myself now, but being in school in the 70s and 80s, I remember wondering about Janusz Korczak, why he uh, 
uh, went with the children uh, to die, but nobody mentioned mm-hmm. that Janusz Korczak was Jewish and so were the children, and they didn't just go to die, but they were in the Warsaw Ghetto, and then they were sent uh, to uh, to the uh, uh, death camp in Treblinka. Uh, so this is no longer the case of not hearing the word the Holocaust, but we can hear the word Holocaust all the time. The question is why and how it's brought up. Uh, and if it's brought up in the context of righteousness, uh, then Jews are also primarily a victims. Um, and they're either Polonized, and I think that it's fascinating how uh, during the round anniversary of Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, it was coined as the most Polish of all the Polish uprisings because it was so devoid of any hope uh, for victory. Uh, or, on the other hand, they are the sort of strange uh, um, section that was not never part of Polish society that then was killed by the Germans while Poles were s- struggling to save uh, to save them. And increasingly, the, the question of Jewish, so-called Jewish collaboration is entering the public discourse. Um, then again, this is not just a question of what historians are going to write and publish. They will probably find ways to publish abroad, to maybe apply for grants uh, elsewhere. But um, what the shape the use and possibly abuse of Holocaust will be. Um, And I'm ending on the not really any answer, but a statement of great, great concern. Thank you very much, Natalia. Andrea Petto is our Mm -hmm. next speaker. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be a distinguished fellow at the Center of Holocaust Studies here in Munich till June quietly working on my book on female perpetrators during the Second World War. In my five-minute intervention, I want to put forward one argument, namely that today a major paradigm change is happening in the Holocaust memorialization. Previous consensus about the Holocaust has been questioned now, not only by marginalized political and scientific actors, but governments, and government-funded institutions by the mainstream. This is fundamentally new, connected with the emergence of illiberalism as a viable, livable, desirable alternative to liberalism. Therefore, it requires fundamentally new strategies from the different actors. Let me first support my argument why I think this is fundamentally new, then I will suggest some useful strategies. This systematic erosion of the previously dominant Holocaust paradigm hasn't started recently with the peace government in Poland or with the Fidesz in Hungary. But the beginnings can be traced back to 1989. Hmm. After 1989, along with the revision of progressive political traditions, anti-communism fueled by the persecutions which took place during the Soviet occupation, became the foundation of the emerging political discourses within the former Eastern Bloc countries. The Holocaust narrative 
was conceived during the Cold War, which, besides determining its characteristics, also elevated the moral command of never again into a measure of universal integrity. The memory politics of the European Union is built on a positive notion, namely that learning from the past is a process through which negative experience may become a positive force. Consequently, within the framework of never again, European citizens should comply with democratic values and reject everything that led to the Holocaust, which, according to Frank Furedi, I quote, is a therapeutic censorship, both patronizes and infantilizes people, end quote. International organizations like the IHRA, established in 2000 with the Stockholm Declaration, supervise from top down whether individual states are committed to these values in their education, in the museums, and when organizing events. Let me stress, the stakes cannot be higher than today. These values are foundational for the European Union. As its, opening char- as its charter opens with the sentence, I quote, reunited after bitter experiences, end quote. And this bitter experience refers to euphemistically to the Second World War, Holocaust, forced settlement and genocide as a part of the European heritage. So how do we deal with this uh, heritage? Presently, it is a question whether the European memory politics, which is based on the never-again paradigm, can be further sustained in the long run. Let me argue that there is a paradigm change happening, which is consisting of six parts. Let me very briefly go on the six. First is the canonization of the double occupation thus relegating all responsibility to the occupying forces, Germans and the Soviets. It is not simple to place the dark patches of the past into ethnocentric memory politics, especially when there are competing remembrances. But this offers selective forgetting of collaboration with Nazi Germany and also with the Soviet Union, on the individual level. So that is the reason why this is so powerful, because it brings down the memory politics to the individual level. The second is, uh, in this present paradigm change, renationalizing of the national narrative, sorry, renationalizing of the transnational narrative of the Holocaust is happening, as opposing Uh, that there is no narrative that could harmonize national historiography and the memories of the various group of the survivors. However, all this is embedded in political processes. Therefore, some memories stand a better chance of becoming dominant on the national level, forgetting the transnational elements. The third one is de-Judaization. Making Jewish victims invisible their experience is marginal. And of course, I can go on for hours on this, but just let me brief here. 
The fourth one is anti-intellectualism. Anti-intellectualism of the populist term. Attacks on science are questioning the position of historian as a professional. Anybody can be appointed as an expert or as a historian. No previous credentials are needed to be promoted and paid well by the different government historical institutes. The fifth one is desecularization. Favoring the religious framework of remembrance as the present paradigm, never again, is a fundamentally secular paradigm. And to invisibilize those Jewish victims who were not religious or converted. And the sixth one is closing memory. To move on, uh, memorializing institutions, uh, to, to found memorializing institutions which are promoting that Jews were killed and let's forget about them. And actually, this is the paradigm which very much contributes to the mushrooming of different historical research institutes, memory points, and uh, different um, cemeteries. So, what can be done? What can be done? Recent studies show that independently, that institutionalization of Holocaust education is exponentially increasing, number of study programs and research institutes are growing, general ignorance regarding the Holocaust has never been higher. I can quote all these alarming figures that 40% of the uh, British uh, uh, secondary school students never heard about the Holocaust. That means we have to ask the question to ourselves, what are we doing wrong? The founders of Holocaust research have been fundamentally concerned with the community of remembrance, with ordinary people. And that is my main argument, that we should be doing more outreach and think about the community of remembrance. Uh, And I give you one, I think, good example, a best practice. As a president of the subcommittee of history of the Second World War of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences, I'm proudly sharing this good practice, uh, including confer- organizing conferences for non-academic audience and a podcast series. The podcast series is so popular that our first nine podcasts were listened by more than 50,000 people. And to show how popular this podcast series was about the history of the Second World War, you can find it if you Google CEU podcast on the history of the Second World War. The whole series has been stolen in Mexico, and uh, they broadcast the podcast, including advertisements for furniture and cars, so they are actually making money on our podcast. We also have Anna Ulrich, who... Uh, a fellow of the Center for Holocaust Studies who talks about the work she's doing here, and I think that's a good start. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much for your uh, interesting uh, uh, and highly illuminating uh, statements. When listening to them, I, I found it striking that, um, that you, you all have addressed 
many similarities in, in the various countries you have spoken about. On the one hand, I would underline what uh, Natalia has already said. We find uh, many, many historians in these countries who have dealt with the history of the Holocaust, in Poland in particular, in yeah, Hungary, other countries um, who have done cutting-edge research on the history of the Holocaust that belong to the international or are an integral part of the international community of Holocaust historians. Nevertheless, um, Holocaust memory um, is, is in, a, in a kind of struggle with national narratives in this country, with national narratives with an emphasis on victimhood, narratives that characterize the own nation as one of victims, heroes and martyrs in, in particular. And now my, the, 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 when, when listening to your presentation, I asked myself, so what is, uh, when, when looking at uh, the, the very much different historical roles of these countries in the Second World War, um, looking at the fact that Hungary, for instance, had been an ally of Nazi Germany, or Romania, who had actively killed hundreds of thousands of Jews without being ordered by the Germans, uh, on the one hand, and then looking at Poland, uh, uh, a country that could be, with a certain right, can be characterized as an object and also kind of victim of German occupation, of Lithuania with something in between, uh, a country collaborating with the Germans on the one hand, but also, of course, an object of German uh, occupation. So what are the reasons for these similarities, given the fact that the historical role of these countries were quite different? And one, I would never treat as far as the historical role is concerned Poland and Romania on, on an equal level. I think they don't belong to that kind of level. Nevertheless, we are now discussing... So um, very similar uh, problems uh, you have you have already mentioned, and what is the reason for this similarity vis-à-vis -a, -vis a completely different historical role? You have an idea. about the reasons for for this. Maybe a short remark. Uh, I think that uh, the very interesting question is uh, uh, whether historians in our countries uh, are challenging uh, the nationalizing myths, or uh, do they participate in the in the construction of positive national narrative with heroes, own heroes, and foreign victims. And uh, for my case, in between, it's uh, very ambivalent. You have the uh, national conservative historians, and you have uh, self-critical historians. Um, but uh, I think the interesting question is about: Do the is there a political will to uh, to hear the argument of historians, to listen to historians, to to make decision of or based on historical research? Uh, there are a lot of cases in Lithuania where historians, the historical community protested against uh, memory laws, for example, in Lithuania, or against the uh, ceremony for the anti-Soviet partisan leaderships, um, 
but um, the answer was uh, that you historians, you have to participate in conference and we uh, politicians, we have to go on with, with our uh, identity politics. And there is a question of identity politics in the Eastern Europe uh, to construct, uh, first of all, the positive national history. Uh, that's uh, the, the aim and uh, a lot of historians in Lithuania say, yes, we should uh, at first construct our positive national history, and then can we start with deconstructing you know, critical uh, reflection on our history, with uh, critical reflection about our bystanders and collaborators. Uh, but as I said, there is an um, ambivalence in the, in the historical uh, field in Lithuania. I might uh, add that um, uh, the case of Moldova, in the case of Moldova, we also see um, that the historians are engaged with this construction of, of national history of uh, they called Moldovan or Romanian history. Um, um, they're saying we were deprived of our history during the Soviet time, so we are uh, now have uh, it's our own duty to um, uh, take part actively in this construction. And I also already gave uh, examples of this. At the same time, you also see that there is a tendency to find excuses, especially um, due to geographical positioning of. Uh, Contested borderland region. So, um, of, of, in one um, um, case, uh, loyalty issues appeared. In another case, loyalty issues appeared. So, it's rather um, in, in showing, um, so excusing the situation. That's why local uh, actors are not present. So, Soviets came, occupied us, Romanians liberated, or vice versa. So, we are not. Uh, we were not uh, in charge of that. So this this uh, geopolitical situation and this this um, political play that comes to to the fore um, uh, in the in the late um, so the last uh, twenty five years it also shows us that not this construction is not um, taken as a full. Um, um, Charge, uh, but but also the excuses uh, of of showing that uh, only the foreign um, regime is guilty of be we being deprived of our national history and being in this positioning. So this is a partial only um, task taken on, not not a full task. I think, in a way, Andrea and her wonderful categorization already took us to those points that um, bring countries with, as, as you correctly pointed out, have very different status during the Second World War. But um, again, this is not the most analytical category, but I, I'm under the impression that during the 90s, um, that there was a sense of, and it connects me to Andrea's point about what we should do, aside from just despair, uh, that uh, that possibly there, with all the uh, efforts that were made locally and centrally, uh, that in a way the conversation was happening very much uh, among uh, people who were uh, of the same opinion, who had uh, uh, who had accepted a certain remaking of of uh, national. 
uh, memory uh, um, and emerged from that uh, trauma uh, willing to to uh, to to take it as a point from which they they continue uh, and um, I think that uh, this work uh, is not completely lost. Uh, again, um, a book came out last year, but like a few months ago, on Irena Sendlerova um, by uh, Anna Bikont, uh, which in a way not only celebrates the woman who had become you know, Poland's candidate for Nobel Peace Award, uh, uh, instrumental in saving uh, um, Jewish children, but also revealing how complex her own standing in a Polish society during and after the war was. And as the book had various readings, um, there were evenings devoted to the book uh, in Warsaw and beyond. Apparently, there was a lot of uh, interested audience, not professional historians, who were very happy to see Sendlerova's story uh, told to them in, a, in this complex, uh, far from black and white uh, way, uh, in which she was not a saint, in which she actually was the left wing rather than devout, devout Catholic, in which she had very complex relationship with her own, uh, um, with the memory of her own heroism after the war. So. It's not all lost, but the question is, what's the margin in all of these places that we discussed and how this margin can be um, potentially uh, expanded? And I think that uh, this um, popular history or public history is is indeed a key. Uh, But uh, with my somewhat nostalgic perception of what was done in Poland, it sort of leaves me with a question mark since still, because a lot of it, not podcasts, but a certain technological uh, uh, tools were not available, but there was a lot of public history done. So uh, did we, in a way, collectively hit a wall uh, beyond which it's simply very difficult to think of your own um, past with those very dark uh, moments um, and how, again, this can be challenged. Thank you. I think this is a very important question, and when I'm thinking of how to respond, uh, my uh, first reaction is, where does it come from, right? So when I'm listening to this um, uh, uh, young so-called historians, I was wondering who was their history teacher? Where do they come from? Where do, what did they study? Uh, what did they read? Uh, so in a sense, uh, I think that we have to uh, think about this uh, the Holocaust education as an elite uh, social engineering project, which basically failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a sense uh, that uh, the different uh, mem- it did it did not manage to attract and to get into dialogue with certain uh, memory communities. And let me bring in one concrete example, which is this book I'm, I'm working on, uh, which is a story of a, a female perpetrator who was um, um, who was a, a killer. And uh, when I'm I'm interviewing the uh, perpetrators, when I'm interviewing the um, 
the survivors, I see a very different story emerging of that one hour when this uh, mass killing was happening on the 15th of October 1944. So in a sense, you have got this, uh, uh, in the memory studies, it's well known, the Rashomon effect, that the same event is remembered very differently by different people, depending on the time, depending on the context. So uh, here, I think what really triggered that these different memory cultures are becoming hostile and dichotomic memory cultures is the uh, emergence of the illiberal states. Because the illiberal states are the products of a populist revolt mm. uh, against uh, a failed uh, uh, neoliberal social engineering. Consequently, uh, the illiberal states, they do not have ideology. The liberal states have got only memory politics. Mm -hmm. And that's when the whole picture becomes extremely complicated because memory politics becomes a geopolitical tool in order to achieve certain security and to make sure that this geopolitical hegemony is, um, is achieved. And in that particular context, what we see is that uh, uh, the Holocaust memory became the, one of the most targeted fields. Let me open a bracket together with gender studies, because uh, uh, these are those fields uh, where identity politics, identities, and uh, geopolitical aspirations are actually clashing. So that's why I would like to, again, uh, congratulate the organizers that you actually put together this, uh, uh, this event, because I think that, the, uh, that despair is not... Uh, the way how we should go forward, uh, but uh, uh, thinking about what did we do wrong at the same time, uh, built on the enormous, rich, and valuable research which had been done, thinking about future strategies and future vocabularies and future uh, outreach activities uh, to do meaningful research, which is actually enhancing dialogue of the different uh, memory communities. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, we're taking up your, your last remark. You have all um, uh, mentioned a kind of gap between the efforts of historians and the work they have done on the one hand and um, the current um, politics of memory or identity politics uh, of the governments in these various uh, countries. And Andrea has also already mentioned the necessity for more, for a kind of more public outreach. Um, you, you have described, you have said uh, it could have been a kind of elite uh, social engineering project, Holocaust memory, and uh, we should find ways to bridge uh, this gap. This is one question. Uh, perhaps you could also explore a little bit on what, what could be done practically in your countries. And the other question, of course, is um, when it comes, we are here now in Germany, and um, we are observing um, the developments in our own country worldwide, with this growing right-wing populism, nationalism, and um, the rise of these illiberal uh, state to quote this self-description by Viktor Orban. Um, what are, would you expect us to do uh, as, as a German institution or German scholars working in the field? Is there anything we could do 
on a practical level to support people um, who have done lots of research. So we have this kind of fellowship program at the Center for Holocaust Studies and uh, Natalia and now Andrea, uh, we are glad that you both have joined us and are joining us uh, there and so uh, we could support critical, self-critical scholars uh, working uh, in the field, but is there anything else uh, you would like us to do? Uh, <laughs> Keep up the good work. <laughs> but can I actually come back to what uh, Andrea and you both said? And I, I, I really want to be convinced out of my despair. So I'm very happy with what you're saying. Um, uh, I wonder about how, this was what Frank was saying before about the need uh, for dialogue, because uh, I wonder. Um, I wonder about the limits uh, of the said dialogue in the situation of those increasingly completely exclusive um, uh, communities of memory, as Andra, you put it. Um, so there is the outreach, of course, but uh, do we, it's a question to all of us, do we engage in dialogue with uh, uh, scholars, whether they have a degree, I mean, they might have a degree, uh, with people with degrees in history who look at documents and say that they don't, don't see what's written there. Um, but uh, do, do, you know, how do you dialogue in that situation? And at the same time, uh, we obviously can't just speak to ourselves. It's very pleasant and very reassuring, uh, but it will remain... Uh, what it is, a, a pocket uh, of, of people. So I'm myself uh, asking this because, again, in last year in New York, a professor of history from the Catholic University in Lublin, Eva Kurek, uh, came with a series of, and I do not want to um, advertise, um, uh, but she gave a series of public lectures, and I treated myself to one YouTube session. Um, and I considered going to one of the talks she gave somewhere in a Polish center uh, in New Jersey, uh, precisely out of the sense of maybe not engaging in dialogue with her, but maybe voicing something vis-a-vis -vis people who might have come to that lecture because they were curious uh, about Polish-Jewish relations during the Second World War. And then when I listened to the... YouTube session, there was, no, um, there was no space for discussion. And in fact, a student of mine who did brave that place, she actually told me that she uh, left early and she didn't feel safe uh, to, to, to speak up. Uh, so um, I'm wondering how to dialogue. Mm -hmm. I, I, can I? Yes. Um, um, I understand that there is this uh, uh, obsession with safety, right? So this is the generation which wants to be safe. Uh, but this is not safe. Our world is not safe. And uh, getting into difficult arguments is not safe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can give you one example about uh, a dialogue, which uh, might be, I think, uh, uh, interesting for this uh, particular audience. 
And uh, this, don't think I'm naive. I don't believe, and also I'm a teacher, I'm getting paid as a faculty member to convince students to think the way how I want them to think, right? So this is my job, right? Uh, still, uh, the, three years ago, we started a dialogue forum in Budapest about uh, gender and gender issues. And uh, this was financed by the Ebert Foundation. So when you were asking what the Germans can do, the German Social Democratic <laughs> Foundation spending German taxpayers' money very well in, uh, in Hungary on this uh, purpose. And uh, uh, we were not naive getting into this dialogue forum, believing that if we are getting into a discussion with staunch fascists, they will leave the room saying, I've changed, I've changed, I'm different now. But uh, uh, the context matters, and also that uh, uh, this is a safe space for an intellectual discussion, not safe space as for, you know, you are not being challenged or not you are not being said that you, what you are thinking is wrong, but intellectually there is a space to, uh, for you to uh, share your ideas. So um, everybody has got, you know, enough space to uh, talk and then uh, we basically uh, invited a wide spectrum of um, uh, different thinkers, activists, academics, from uh, Trotskyists, anarchists, Dominican nuns, conservative liberals, and uh, they all came. I was moderating this series of, uh, of discussions, and uh, because we were reframing this kind of uh, very difficult debates, because if you are mentioning gender budgeting, work-life balance, uh, women in politics, women in leadership. You know, everybody's falling asleep. This is one thing. And the other is that they all bring in the already existing arguments and discussions, what they have been trained and they have to come forward with because that's a sign of loyalty to that certain political group they hope to uh, get the acknowledgement. So we were coming up with new topics uh, which are all relevant but very different ones like love, like masculinity, like care. So that's what I meant by uh, suggesting reframing and bringing in topics. And for example, uh, Natalia's research on the care and intimacy in the ghetto, for example, that is one of the examples which I had in mind to reframe the, uh, the discussion from this very trenched and uh, difficult discussion. So, uh, and you know, to move to a more theoretical level. Chantal uh, Mouffe is using the concept of antagonistic and agonistic debates. And I think this is really useful in a sense that uh, when you have got this discussion with a neo-Nazi about you know, Holocaust and whatever, you don't really immediately hope to get the reward points, right? Bang, like in the TV shows that you have got the point. But this is a process. It's a very difficult process. And I don't think that we can spare neither the time nor the energy to get involved in these very difficult discussions uh, because the alternative is the ghettoization and the pillarization. And we all know that where all this pillarization and ghettoization lead, and that will lead to despair, 
This would lead to uh, atomized individuals, and this is exactly what the neoliberal order wants you to be in despair and lonely. Thank you. Um, I will go back to the point uh, on uh, education and use of education as a tool of, uh, of uh, national building. I give the example of uh, the teacher seminars that, that uh, took part um, under the um, IHRA um, umbrella. Uh, but I did not mention that, in fact, uh, um, the, uh, the centralized system of education is in detriment of it. Because uh, to these seminars are coming teachers who are appointed, how to say, to, who are head of divisions in, in central districts and who are supposed to go back to their hometowns and report what they learned there. Um, and few of teachers are, in fact, in contact with, with the pupils. And, um, and this is uh, the, the problem here, because uh, um, we are um, uh, not um, we educating managers on Holocaust, but not teachers who are going in the classrooms. And um, the observation about how to do the most of it in, in terms of, uh, um, of um, uh, using um, uh, tools that will give the results we're expecting for, I think it's, um, it's good to invest in stakeholders because the stakeholders um, uh, are active in the use of heritage as a tool of, of constructing memory, of, of doing exhibitions, of uh, um, visual material, is applying to, to the public in a good way, um, um, much more than, than text or, or uh, presentation, uh, which people do not attend. Um, that's why um, 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 it's, I think uh, um, um, the heritage st stakeholders, invest, uh, non-state, non in fact, actors that might be uh, active, that might, might become active uh, in, in the building of... Uh, of uh, um, 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 heritage uh, um, that could be effective in the case of Moldova. And I observed that some stakeholders have people that have interdisciplinary education, not historians, not uh, anthropologists, but, but both, for example. And um, this is a few, there are a few cases, but which give us the hint towards the fact that these interdisciplinary studies can generate ideas, can, go, can um, make people or professionals go down to the public and, and search for certain strategies to, 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 um, being, for being held. Uh, maybe a short uh, uh, remark to, to your question about the role of German historians. I think uh, what is still some, something lacking is a, a broad discourse where also historians are involved in uh, dealing with the history politics in Germany. Um, I think that um, um, what should be stronger maybe it's the participation of German historians in the debates about new memorials uh, about um, different initiatives. Uh, and uh, I think also that historians should uh, react uh, and speak out against the nationalization of uh, victim groups, against the discourses of self-victimization in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, and they should be aware of uh, the nationalistic approaches to the history of the Second World War, uh, just to mention the uh, evolvement of uh, 
birthday of uh, Bandera as a national holiday in the Ukraine. So you should speak out. You should make uh, remarkable that you are not uh, in a, uh, you are not agreed with this nationalistic discourse in dealing with the Second World War. And uh, also, I think it's a challenge for German historian to deal with this uh, different uh, victim uh, narratives in the Eastern Europe. For example, uh, if you, as German historian, you go to Kaunas, Nine Forts, it's first and foremost for you a site of extermination of Lithuanian Jews and Jews from Munich, from Berlin, from Frankfurt. It's uh, the first, uh, first image what you see. But for Lithuanians, it's also a site of Stalinist crimes. So how you have to deal with this, uh, as German historian, with this, uh, competition on this concurrence of uh, victimizations of memory, uh, or uh, just to put an example outside of uh, Eastern uh, of uh, European Union in Belarus uh, last year in summer. The memorial Maltrestinets had been opened with uh, Frank Walter Steinmeier, and uh, uh, the, the, the participators uh, spoke about about uh, Soviet victims, about Holocaust victims. Uh, but uh, after that, in the talks and conversations um, about this new memorial. Uh, the survivals, the Belarus survivals, uh, uh, um, talked about the, um, the, the, that they are afraid that just the Jews uh, would be remembered here, but not Belarus people. So um, uh, they are aware of this, uh, of this European uh, Holocaust memory and uh, are frightening that uh, nobody speaks on Belarus victims. We are speak on Holocaust victims. So, uh, for the German historian, is a is a question how to deal with these uh, different contradicting histories of traumatic memories. Still, so our, our problem is that we are now running out of time, or at the end of, of our discussion. Uh, I think it's hard to sum up the, the discussion, but perhaps I should add some some remarks from a German uh, perspective vis-à-vis uh, -vis the question what we should do or what we are doing uh, as a center with our fellowship program, but also we, what we try to do is to attract the interest of our students um, to, to the countries in Central and Eastern Europe because uh, I, more, what I'm realizing more and more is that, that uh, German students sometimes think that six million German Jews have been murdered in the Holocaust and there is a, the knowledge that the Holocaust had predominantly uh, carried out in Central and Eastern Europe is, is more or less failing. It's, it's maybe a kind of success of the German memorial culture that uh, the argument that everything had happened in the neighborhood, in Dachau and in other places, but uh, the dilemma of, of, of course, the German memorial sites is that they had never been central places of the Holocaust. And so our seminars are quite often connected with excursions to eastern Poland, to the Baltic states, now to the western Ukraine and to Lviv. And um, so that our students here in Munich get an idea and are confronted with the local memorial culture, with the historical problems, with the present state of affairs and discussions there. That's what we can do and what we find very interesting. And another aspect when you are visiting these sites in Eastern Europe, I find it quite remarkable 
that there, in many cases there is no visible German contribution there. When you take, for instance, Ponari, Nivellius, uh, one of the main killing sites of the Holocaust where more than 50,000 Jews had been killed under German command uh, with uh, the help of local Lithuanians. And when you, you, you walk, uh, walking there across uh, uh, the, 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 the site, uh, you realize that there is an Israeli memorial and a Polish and Soviet one, but no visible German contributions, perhaps. And I think the Germans cannot say or leave it to the Iranians. They had been responsible for these killings there. And therefore, uh, from my perspective, uh, the, the Germans should show more responsibility uh, also for these sites. Uh, we, we cannot uh, order the Lithuanians to do this or to that, but we can offer help and, yeah. and also financial uh, support uh, in developing uh, these sites in, in, a, in an appropriate way. And that's at least something the Germans uh, could do more than, than it was the case in the past. It's not a matter of the German memorial sites or the North sites in Germany alone. When dealing with the Holocaust, we also have our have to show and demonstrate a kind of historic responsibility. We cannot simply leave it uh, to the people there, uh, but also have to demonstrate our financial support and our uh, scholarly support uh, and, and many many other things that that could be done. So the final thing then I could do just to, to thank you again for your contributions. I would like you to give the four discussants a warm final applause. This is the end of our podcast. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.